Jefferson County 911. Yes, I am a teacher calling by high school. There is a student here with a gun. Um, okay, has anybody been injured, ma'am? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the school is in a panic, and I'm in the library. I've got students down under the tables, kids. Heads under the tables. In 1999, we, we couldn't get her brain around. It, they, it, it, the law enforcement initially, when they got there, thought it was a terrorist attack. Hi, Captain. Wasn't that shooting at Columbine? Oh, yeah. Um, numerous injuries. I have no idea what is going on. 71's under fire right now. I've got this student on the phone. He's hiding in the back room right now. He knows where the shooter is if you don't. Okay. The killers were fellow students. They were killing their friends. It was despicable. You know, something that we really can't get our minds around. On April 20th, 1999, two high school students unleashed tear and bloodshed among their classmates. Kieran Nicholson was the Denver Post-Jefferson County beat reporter at the time. It was a beautiful day. It was kind of odd. It was a beautiful day, bluebird sky, really nice, calm, no winds. Kieran was home taking a lunch break when his editor called. Told me, hey, there's been a shooting down at Columbine High School. So I, I headed straight down there, and we didn't have much more than that at that point because it was just, just breaking. Sean Stanley was a Denver Post photographer. He first heard of the shooting over the scanner in the newsroom. We had scanners back in the photography department, and uh, over the scanner we heard an alert tone. We have a female down in the south lot of Columbine High School. It's the south lower lot at the east end of the lot. I don't know if this is related to this explosion. Very uh, shortly thereafter, by um, reports of explosions within um, within Columbine High School. Um, at that point, I had already uh, opened up the equipment cabinet, grabbed the longest lens that we had, which was a 600 millimeter uh, f/4 lens. Jumped in uh, my pickup truck. Um, probably broke more traffic laws than I ever had at one given time, and uh, sped my way down to a uh, Columbine. And on the way down. Um, ambulance, police cars, fire trucks were just flying, flying by me on Wadsworth. The raw evil captured by local and national news media at Columbine High School that day is something that's been forever seared into the American consciousness. It was a tragedy that demanded unprecedented coverage as the first modern mass school shooting of its kind. In a new podcast from the Denver Post, Bearing Witness, Columbine and the News Media, we examine the media coverage from the perspective of the people who were there. I'm reporter Kyle Newman. And I'm Amy Brothers, a multimedia producer. We're going to explore how news unfolded that day and what happened afterward in this special three-part podcast series. Both Kyle and I grew up in Colorado. In 1999, I was in seventh grade, and Kyle, I think you were in third grade, right? Yep. Yeah, so we were young. We didn't experience this as working journalists. I lived in Littleton. I remember going to elementary school the next day, and even as eight, nine-year-olds that we were, we were already so aware of what was going on. We were asking our teachers about the trench coat mafia. It was a very, very big deal, even to little kids at the time. Yeah, it was a big story. I've always been a visual person, and I can remember images of kids running out of school more than I remember what was written. These photographs, I think, are hard to take. They're hard to publish. They're hard to look at. But I think they can have a really profound impact on a community. 
And to your point, Amy, that's really why I wanted to get involved with this podcast and with the 20th anniversary project. I know how much April 20th, 1999, I know how much that day means to the community, both in terms of heartbreak and in terms of hope. And uh, I went to Arapaho. My sister was there when there was a school shooting there several years back. And so I believe school shootings and how they're covered are tough subjects, but tough subjects that we need to talk about and address. In episode one, The Day Of, we're going to look at how local news covered the murder of 12 students and a teacher. As Kieran and any veteran reporter would tell it, the first step in covering breaking news is to get out there and get boots on the ground. Of course, there was no real template for how to cover a tragedy like this because it was so shocking. I mean, there had been other mass school tragedies before this. Yep, like the bombing at the Bath School in Bath, Michigan, 1927, killed 44. A sniper attack at the University of Texas in 1966 killed 16. But both of those were carried out by a single perpetrator and both by adults. Yeah, people couldn't fathom that kids would kill kids like this. Mitch Jelniker, longtime Denver 7 newscaster, expressed that very sentiment. On April 20th, 1999, he was already a veteran of reporting on national tragedies, having covered the Oklahoma City bombing with a TV station there a couple years earlier. Yeah, and I think it's crazy that on the morning of Columbine, he was actually giving a presentation at Colorado State about his experiences in reporting such a mass tragedy. And right after he got done, his pager went off that a shooting was happening at a local high school. My pager went off back in the day of pagers. And it said it was a, it was an all page to everybody in the newsroom that there was something about a possible gunman or shots fired in or near a school. After talking with his producer, Mitch headed down to Littleton and he described the procedure in those days for covering something this big. Breaking news, you, you get a crew on the scene, perhaps get the helicopter up and get a live truck or a satellite truck on scene as quickly as you can so you can learn more. In addition, you make those initial phone calls to uh, the local jurisdiction, the sheriff, police, first responders, to find out what they know. Hi, Mark Williams at Channel 9 calling. Uh -huh. Checking to see if uh, PIO, I can't recall his name, is on his way. Hey, David. Uh, is on his way. To be honest with you, I don't know right this second. Okay. I can put you over to his office. All right. Okay. Thanks. Sean Stanley had been working as a photojournalist with the Denver Post since 1988. And as he raced down to Littleton that day, he saw people stop their cars in traffic, get out, and run down four lanes of traffic on Bowles Avenue, which is a main road near the school. And I distinctly remember a one woman, um, even though I'm a, a photographer, there's a, there's a lot of times there's sounds that you, you never forget, too. And I remember um, the scene of one lady stopping her car and jumping out and uh, screaming. I don't think you ever truly forget the sound of a mother screaming. And uh, she was screaming uh, uh, her child's name, obviously. And I remember it was a very surreal scene that she actually had forgotten to put the emergency brake on her car. And she actually uh, uh, left the car, started running, and the car was still rolling. And I drove past all that. can't remember exactly where I parked, but I parked a couple blocks away from the uh, from the school, um, grabbed my equipment from the uh, back of the uh, truck, and uh, started heading towards, um, on foot, um, towards Columbine High. The next step in covering breaking news is just to find out what's happening and to nail down the details. 
It's typical at a breaking news event for reporters to arrive without a tremendous amount of information or backstory as to what's going on at the scene, and they have to obviously glean that for themselves. In 1999, before social media, to find out what was going on, you turned on your TV, your radio, you read your newspaper, that was just about the only way to get information. But today, of course, we might turn to Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Back in 1999, though, few people had cell phones and the lines of communication, albeit instant communication, were much more limited. Yeah, Mitch remembers a lot of confusion. Large crowds of people who were afraid they didn't know what was going on. And it was chaotic. Most people were, were searching for answers, and then so as soon as they see someone with a television camera or, or, you know, live truck with a big logo on the side of it, they usually descend upon us to say, what's going on? And of course, we were asking uh, the police and the authorities what was going on, and they were, still, they were still unsure what was happening. Sean was on the scene earlier than most other journalists. He remembers seeing panic, students running out from the school in shock and disbelief. He knew there was something very, very traumatic going on within those walls. You can't hide trauma in a face and uh and the students faces that were that were at least uh, heading my direction it was a um, they clearly indicated that there was something uh um very wrong and very serious uh going on uh, within the school the shooting began at around 11:19 that morning and lasted less than an hour but by early afternoon there is a huge national and local media presence one of the reasons the national news outlets were able to respond so quickly because they were already in Colorado covering the grand jury in the John Bonet Ramsey case. And the scene was just so big. And there were a lot of people there. There were a lot of parents there. There were a lot of parents there who were wondering about their children. Is my son all right? Is my daughter all right? And it was hard to approach them. I, you know, I'm trying to do reporting and trying to engage people and talk to people. And they, most people did not want to talk. There was kind of, there was this collective like state of shock. Jimmy Lucas, a Jefferson County Sheriff's deputy on scene that day, who was working to reunify parents and kids, described how deputies brought Columbine students from the high school campus to nearby Leewood Elementary, where scared parents were rushing to pick up their children. There was so much press there that we had to try to sneak the high school kids in from a different location because the press was listening to, um, to our radio channels and we wanted the kids that had been traumatized by this event uh, to not have to run the gauntlet. The third step in breaking news is to report what you can when you can. This is the place where it's toughest to sort out truth from rumor. Kieran and I talked about the process. Like you said, the reporting, actual reporting being difficult to come by. Uh, was, was there a lot of good reporting that came out of that initial day? Was it mostly speculation? I mean, how, did you, how do you assess that 20 years later? I think there was a lot of good reporting. Um, I think it was collective. Uh, if you got a detail here or a detail there, you know, you would phone it in. Um, Ann Schrader, who is a, a colleague um, who lives down in that neighborhood, she knew the lay of the land rather well, so she didn't go to the park. She went to the flip side, the other side of the school, and was on a cul-de-sac that the campus, um, you could exit, get off the campus and go down this cul-de-sac. And she um, found a couple of people coming and going 
Um, and then I think through working uh, law enforcement sources and also um, just paying attention to what the sheriff's office was saying um, at the park that day, which is was part of my assignment, um, I, I think we started getting the feel. Uh, the, numbers, um, the numbers were up and down. Um, they were inaccurate at times. At times they were run a little high. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that goes with the territory as far as it being, you know, this was kind of a one-of-a-kind thing at that point in time. As Kieran said, everyone was just trying to figure out what was happening. They were listening to the scanner and to what witnesses said that were coming out of school, but it was hard to tell what was actually accurate. And the historic breaking news coverage didn't come without some mistakes that day. For example, the Jeffco Sheriff Office released a way-inflated body count the night of the shooting. Yeah, the front page of the Denver Post, which actually went on to want a Pulitzer for that coverage, listed 25 dead. The actual number, of course, was 13, and as reporters were trying to sort out the details, I talked with Kieran also about how the media's collective on-site coverage went that day. You know, you want to you wanna get the scoop and you want to get news first, but um, I, I, I think everybody was so focused on just trying to um, tell the story of what was going on, what had happened, and be accurate and be correct. I, I don't know that there was a um, collectively that we got all that much wrong that day. I, I think it was um, everybody did. It was a difficult assignment. I mean, a, an extremely difficult assignment. And people just, you know, put their nose to the grindstone and, and went to work and, and, you know, did the best they could. From everyone we've talked to and from our archival footage, it's clear there was a lot of fear and confusion that day. In some cases, reports from people who had been inside the school weren't right. In other cases, incorrect information was coming from officials who were still investigating. As they are trying to sort through the details, Mitch and his team had to make minute-by-minute decisions on what to report on air and what to leave out. Members of law enforcement, and they were well-intentioned, and they would say to me, I remember at one point, I said, guess why are we so far back? We can't see anything. We, what, what, what's happening? And they said, well, we think we may have a sniper on the roof. And I said, can you confirm that? No. So I would call the station. I said that they think they, can the helicopter see anything? And so they would make calls. And, and, and so that was that little bit of information I never went on the air with because I could not confirm it. We think we have six or more shooters in there. I'm like, oh, it, like six or more people with guns in the, in the yes. And I said, can you confirm that? No, couldn't confirm it. Called the station. They couldn't confirm it. Asked the helicopter, can you see it? Can't see anything. There's another bit of information I never went on the air with. And on both of those items, I'm glad I didn't because it was the kinds of things that were coming out of people's just adrenaline and it just couldn't be confirmed. I think that they thought there were more than just two shooters because those two moved to the building pretty quickly.
we would prefer it to have never happened. I would have preferred not to have been there. You know, some people think, well, gosh, that's the story of lifetime. You want to be there. No, it's not. It's the story of death. It's the story that, that you would prefer not to live with. But you don't get that choice. Sean hadn't seen his photographs from Columbine in almost 15 years. When I found this out, I sent him an email with the photos. Yeah, I can't imagine what the parents were going through um, of the uh, of the couple with the two uh, two daughters. I would uh, I would imagine sea of media behind them. Mm, what a horrific what a horrific day. And uh, you know, I was uh, I was uh, taken by. And the picture reflects it in part, but not fully. The picture of the girls' faces in the school bus. Um, I remember all those faces in the window being shell-shocked. Just, uh, just shell-shocked. I've seen it in other parts of the world. You know, it goes beyond um, breaking down emotionally and you're numb. I found out later that the students um, were taken out, a large amount of students were taken out in groups and they were searched um, and uh, I guess questioned. Um, I didn't see any of that was done on a different part of the campus. And then uh, school buses started passing by where I was on the north um, of Columbine. School buses started passing very slowly and they were filled with, uh, with students. And I remember at the time this photograph was taken, um, I was uh, I was shocked at um, at the faces that to me were shell shocked. They, they, it was a look of uh, it wasn't a look of trauma. It wasn't a, a, a it wasn't um, it wasn't crying. It was a it was a blank um, blank faces. I remember window after window passing by, um, passing through my viewfinder. And uh, I, w I was photographing the whole time, and we selected this one photograph, um, I believe, for publication of two girls' faces. And um, even though we could imagine a different emotion, to me, uh, for them to show, to me, they were um, completely um, uh, shell-shocked. Um, I could imagine that it hasn't even fully resonated with them at this moment. It was too early on what has really occurred, and they're looking out at a sea of media. This was after the National Guard had, Guard had shown up. SWAT team was everywhere. The situation was over, but, um, you know, in a lot of ways, you could look at the faces in the window and uh, describe it as uh, their story was just beginning. Sean's front page photo in the Denver Post on April 21st, 1999 is of a different girl. In it, she's being escorted from the school by a plainclothes officer. It was one of hundreds of images he shot that day, images he had hoped would document the pain of the tragedy in order to somehow prevent a similar one again. The female student that uh, her picture ended up being on the cover of the Denver Post the following day, I remember a track of what we would call follow focus of the subjects running towards me. 
And this was very, very early on. It was within minutes of me arriving on the scene. And follow focusing her face as she rushed towards me, I knew instantly, um, you know, you can't hide from that expression. It was, it was more than terror in her eyes. Here we are in 2019, many school shootings later, from Virginia Tech to Sandy Hook to Marjorie Stoneland Douglas. Even though Sean was coming at his work from a place of hope, that hope has faded in the last 20 years. Um, you know, we, we would have hoped, myself and a handful of photographers that I know, we would have hoped that everything changes the day after Columbine. This is not how we live as a people. But then we look back and go, it didn't have much of an effect, now did it? So that's when you become very pessimistic. You, uh, you become a little one-sided, and then you decide, then you know, it's easy to fall into the realm of where the work um, that I did obviously had no impact. You've touched upon something that's unresolved. I think you compartmentalize. You put it in your place and you learn and and uh, and you never forget. You know, I'll, I'll never forget that girl's face. She's with me always. I will never forget the sound of a mother screaming her daughter's name while she's running from her moving car. You don't forget those. Those are important. I don't think we're supposed to forget those. And you compartmentalize them, but you're not supposed to forget I would have much preferred to have been on vacation the day of Columbine for my job, but we have a job to do. And you step up, and you're not numb, but you block out and you do your work. It's a piece of history. Every, every frame that was taken that day from all of the photographers, the hundreds of rolls of film, each one of those are a valuable piece of history. And we're not supposed to forget. And, and maybe some of those pictures... They're supposed to be there. Next time on Bearing Witness, Columbine and the News Media, we discuss what happens to coverage after a breaking news event. As the days and weeks go by, how does anyone make sense of a senseless tragedy, and what happens when the search for answers leads to unexpected places? Join us for part two of our podcast, The Follow-Up. To see the pictures of the girls on the bus, other photographs by Sean Stanley, and more of the reporting on the 20th anniversary of Columbine, visit denverpost.com. Bearing Witness is brought to you by the Denver Post. It's hosted by me, Kyle Newman, and Amy Brothers, and is written by me, Amy, and Katie Rausch, with editing help from Matt Schubert, Patrick Trailer, Matt Sebastian, and Mario Sinelli. Bearing Witness is produced by me, Amy Brothers, and Katie Rausch. We want to give a huge thanks to everyone who is willing to come on this podcast. We know Columbine isn't always easy to talk about. Special thanks to KMGH Denver 7 for the use of audio from their archival footage. The 911 and police radio tapes were provided by the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. Our music in this episode is by CCH Audio and Audio Earth. Bearing Witness, Columbine in the News Media is available wherever you find your podcasts.